This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrosi in Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. Bob? And I write uh, Law.com's Legal Blog Watch and also my own blog, Law Sites, and another blog called Media Law. Well, Craig, in 2002, Ellen Mendelson, a 51-year-old mid-level manager for Sprint, in uh, the oldest manager in her unit, was let go from her position as part of a company-wide layoff. Mendelssohn sued Sprint uh, on the grounds of age discrimination uh, in violation of the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. Her supervisor claimed that she was fired for being the weakest performer in his unit. Well, after that, Bob, a federal jury in Kansas City ruled against Mendelssohn after a judge excluded the testimony of five ex-employees from other departments at Sprint headquarters who claimed they had also been released because of their age or uh, in highly technical lawyer terms, what we call Me Too evidence. That case was appealed to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, which uh, uh, in a two-to-one ruling reversed, holding that the district court had erred in prohibiting Mendelssohn from calling the other employees as witnesses. Uh, That was appealed in turn to the Supreme Court, which on December 3rd, 2007, uh, heard oral arguments in the case Sprint United Management Company versus Mendelssohn. Well, and finally, on February 26th this year, in a unanimous decision, the justices ruled that the federal courts cannot block uh, this evidence of age discrimination without a more complete explanation than the one judge gave in the case of Ellen Mendelson. Basically, they allowed the lower courts to decide the admissibility of testimonies by employees other than plaintiffs. So today we will look at the Mendelssohn case, uh, Me Too evidence, the proof required uh, in age discrimination cases, the unanimous decision by the Supreme Court, uh, and at employees' and companies' rights when it comes to age discrimination. To help us do that today are three guests. First off is attorney Michael Ketchmark, uh, a partner at Davis, Ketchmark, and McCrate in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, Michael specializes in discrimination and personal injury cases. He's won several multi-million dollar verdicts, including the largest age discrimination verdict in the history of Missouri, as well as three of the top 10 plaintiffs verdicts in the state in 1997, and a two and a quarter billion dollar plaintiffs verdict in 2003 that was the second highest in the nation. Michael Ketchmark now focuses primarily on representing victims and their families in trucking litigation. In 2004, Ingram's Magazine named Michael Ketchmark one of the top 40 leaders in the Kansas City area under the age of 40. Welcome to the program, Michael Ketchmark. Thank you. Glad to be here. And Bob, our next guest is attorney Jeannie Davini from the law firm of Spencer Fain Britton Brown in Overland Park, Kansas. Jeannie is a partner in the firm's Labor and Employment Group. Her practice focuses on the defense of employers in employee-initiated lawsuits, as well as counseling and training management in all aspects of the employment relationship. Jeannie's admitted to practice in the state and federal courts in both Missouri and Kansas. She serves as an officer of the Kansas Bar Association's Labor and Employment Section and as a barrister in the Kansas Inn of Court. Jeannie recently went to Washington, D.C. to watch the oral argument in the Sprint Mendelssohn case. Welcome to the show, Jeannie. Thank you very much. And finally joining us today is attorney George L. Lennard from the firm Harris, Dowell, Fisher & Harris out of Chesterfield, Missouri. 
Attorney Lennard has more than 20 years of experience in all aspects of labor and employment law, including preventive law as well as litigation. His special interests include employment discrimination, sexual harassment, and non-competition agreements. An avid writer and uh, an early adopter of blogging technology, uh, George Lennard created one of the premier blogs on labor, employment, and human resource topics, George's Employment Blog, uh, which he started in May 2003. Welcome to the show, Attorney George Lennard. Thank you very much. Well, so our listeners can get kind of the uh, basics. Why don't, Jeannie, uh, give us a kind of lowdown since you listened to the oral arguments. Give us a little bit of a lowdown uh, of the basics of the case. Okay. Well, uh, the case was, as you stated, a, a single plaintiff age discrimination case um, filed against Sprint. And uh, as I understand it from being at the oral argument and reading some of the pleadings in the, in the lower court as well as the appellate uh, pleadings, uh, the plaintiff was attempting to offer evidence from five uh, employees who had also been discharged from Sprint uh, in connection with uh, the same or, or a similar reduction in force. Uh, none of those five employees had been uh, supervised or had anything to do with the uh, supervisor who made the decision to discharge the plaintiff. And so there was an argument before trial uh, based upon a motion in limine filed by Sprint um, as to whether or not the testimony from those five individuals um, should be admitted or not. The court sustained the motion in limine, uh, at least to a large extent. The plaintiff then filed an offer of proof about what those five individuals would say. Um, and then ultimately the case was tried to a defense verdict and, and the procedural history went forward as you've already as you already explained. Um, the oral argument, and just as a side note, uh, for those lawyers who have never gone to the Supreme Court to watch an oral argument, uh, it was one of the most rewarding experiences I've had in my professional life. I, it, was, it was just really, really cool. Um, it was particularly cool for me because I knew both sides. Um, Dennis Egan, I've had many cases against him, and I know him, and also uh, familiar with uh, Sprint's in-house counsel who was sitting at counsel's table that day. But in any event, it was, uh, it was very interesting. The, co the court focused its questions, as you can tell from the opinion, um, more on Rule 401 and 403 than the substantive question of whether the evidence should have come in in this particular instance. Um, and, and I think you can tell that's ultimately the way they ruled. Some people have said that this is really more of an evidence case than an employment case. Uh, what does it tell us in terms of the issue that I, that I think everybody was hoping it was going to address, which is the question of Me Too evidence? Michael Ketchmark, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. And, and, and in a discrimination case, what you're trying to show is that the employer made an intentional decision based upon something that's prohibited, age, race, sex, gender. And, you know, the days in our country of um, people putting up signs saying, you know, no colors need apply or no iris need apply, thankfully those are gone. But what's happened is those insidious discriminatory motives are now hidden behind the, the, the corporate doors. And it's when, when are you allowed to talk about other decisions that the company makes? And I think that the defense bar was pushing for um, a, a ruling from the uh, – 
Supreme Court that was very definitive that said you can never have Me Too evidence in. And the Supreme Court didn't do that. They they sent it back to the trial court here, the district court, and they said, let the district court decide. Because in the, the decision to exclude this evidence, the district court judge did not specifically say why it was being excluded. Was it being excluded on, on relevance? Was it being excluded on, under Rule 403 because it was too prejudicial? And if so, why was it too prejudicial? And so the Supreme Court, instead of giving what all the corporate America was desperately hoping for, is this, this flat rule that says, you know, if you someone can't come forward with Me Too evidence, they said, no, we're not going to do that. It's not going to be a per se rule. It's going to be a case-by-case basis. The way I describe it is we've often heard that, that you know, one rotten uh, apple can spoil a barrel. So the question is, is, is the rotten apples here, are they in the same barrel or are they in different ones? Are the other the people going to testify about discrimination that was so far removed from the plaintiff that it has no relevance or the relevance is so remote that is outweighed by its prejudicial value, and if so, they'll let the district court keep it out. But if that rotten apple's in the same barrel, and that type of Me Too evidence comes in. So I think it was really a, a tremendous victory for the plaintiff's bar. Well, was there at least a, a hint? I mean, the, the, the court made some reference to uh, the distinction between a case alleging company-wide discrimination and a case alleging discrimination by a specific uh, supervisor or within a specific uh, department. Uh, George Leonard, I mean, was there any even a hint here of where the court might go with this? Well, I mean, if you read the opinion, it, it uh, uh, has a, a part, Roman numeral three, which is one paragraph, a very short paragraph that addresses the underlying substantive issue, and all the rest of it really uh, address this procedural issue of, um, you know, whether uh, the the Court of Appeals had basically jumped the gun uh, in ruling uh, on an incomplete district court record. And um, uh, that part doesn't say much, except that it's fact-based and depends on many factors, including how closely related the evidence is to the point of circumstances and theory of the case, which um, I think that uh, Michael's uh, you know, colorful illustration of the apple in the barrel is, is, is exactly right on that. Um, it's, it's a question of looking at all the circumstances and facts and, and um, making a determination of, of just how relevant versus prejudicial uh, it is in a particular case, and um, that actually fits in with what the court did in terms of the uh, procedural thing of, of uh, vacating and remanding for a more full explanation, because um, I think the court also uh, clearly uh, gave a boost to the district court's discretion in making this type of decision. And um, uh, we're going to keep seeing this issue come up, and um, you know, although certainly my clients, as a, as a, a defense attorney representing uh, uh, employers in employment law, my clients would would have loved to see, as as Michael mentioned, uh, a per se rule. Um, I, personally, just as an objective uh, observer, I don't think that would be appropriate. And you know, I can tell you from uh, from being there that um, again, employers, I'm, I'm sure, would love a per se rule of no me, take, me too evidence, um, but. Neither side argued for that. Even Sprint's uh, lawyers were not arguing for a, uh, a complete bar on, on Me Too evidence. It was much more uh, specific to the, to the facts of, of this case. And I think the, the one of the most interesting parts or maybe heartening parts of the um, oral argument from my perspective was when Justice Breyer said to Dennis Egan, uh, 
you're, now you're a trial lawyer, right? And Dennis, of course, says yes. And, uh, and Justice Breyer says, well, I'm not. And I, I haven't been in, in front of a, a jury or in front of a judge, uh, maybe ever, but certainly not recently. And I don't want to sit up here in Washington and muck this up. I want to make sure that the district court who's there and familiar with the case and understands the ins and outs of it has the ability to make these kinds of decisions because she, she in this case, she is in a much better position to do that. And I think ultimately that's what this, this case does. I don't know that it was a victory for, for either side of the, of the bar, um, but certainly it was a victory for uh, district judges' rights. Well, you know, as you suggest, those who, those who attend uh, oral arguments kind of like to read the, read the tea leaves of what the justices are, are saying. I mean, what else did you hear at that oral argument? I mean, did you think this was the way, uh, you know, obviously with, with hindsight, you, you could see some hints that this was the way the decision would come out. But, but did you get any other suggestions uh, from the others on the bench? You know, um it, it was fun to, to to sit there afterwards and decide and talk about you know who's going to go which way. Uh, it was it was clear from at least I thought it was clear at the time that that the case, that the Tenth Circuit was going to be overruled. Now again, that doesn't mean that um, that we're talking about a ban on Me Too evidence or even a ban on Me Too evidence as it relates to a different supervisor. But but because of the way this case went up. Um, it was pretty clear that this is the way that the case was going to go. I was a little surprised that it was a unanimous decision. Uh, there was there was discussion about the, the cost of litigation, and if we try, um, you know, in this case, if we try six cases instead of one, is that going to be prohibitively expensive to defend? And um, and and is that what we want to promote? Those kinds of things were interesting policy questions, but. Um, as I said before, most of the questions from the bench really focused on the evidentiary issues as opposed to the to the substantive um, issue in the particular case. Mike, do you think that the Supreme Court left some discretion? I mean, obviously they left some discretion in the district court, but do you think they gave the district courts any more guidance than they already had before this case got decided? No, I really don't. I mean, there's a circuit split right now amongst the appellate courts about about what type of um, parameters there should be on letting this Me Too evidence in. And I feel um, in this case, it was um, that the Supreme Court just really kind of dodged giving guidance and, and sent it back down. And, and essentially, it allowed them to um, reverse the uh, the Tenth Circuit decision, which was broader in allowing the evidence to come back in and, and, and saying, let's just keep this on a trial court um, basis, but without a lot of guidance to the trial courts. And, and But I think that's an okay thing because uh, trial courts should be allowed to uh, uh, to weigh the relevance of a particular piece of evidence versus its prejudicial effect. And, and um, you know, under Rule 403, the thing that's striking to me is just because something's prejudicial doesn't mean it, it, it should be excluded. I'm sure it's, uh, it's prejudicial if you have a, a photograph of um, someone accused of murder firing the gun. Well, that well, what more relevant piece of evidence could you have? In an age discrimination case, if you have a, a corporate-wide, um, you know, reduction in force where the older employees are systematically being eliminated, absolutely relevant. It may be prejudicial, but it's prejudicial because it shows they're guilty of age discrimination. And now district courts are going to be free to allow that type of information in if, if it um, is relevant to the case. And that's a good thing. Apart from the labor issue, do you think the Supreme Court was sending a broader message saying, you know, don't bring us evidentiary rulings? Yeah, I, I, I do believe that it's um, uh, it's more of a, uh, I, the, the broader I read it more as a broader statement to the Tenth Circuit saying we shouldn't have per se rules that say this comes in or this doesn't come in. This should be decided on a case-by-case basis by the trial court 
who is the keeper of the kind of the gatekeeper on what evidence should come in or not come in. And it shouldn't be guided by some bright line test on either side, either that it all comes in or that it doesn't come in. George, how do you look at that? Well, um, I mean, I agree that um, uh, they're saying, obviously, they're saying that there's no, no bright line test here. And um, uh, as, as, as one of the interesting things to, to me is that um, uh, this may be a case that gets cited much more broadly outside of um, the employment discrimination context because it does have um, this impact on uh, the a trial court discretion under uh, the evidence rules, and it, it may become a, an important evidence case and an unimportant um, employment discrimination case because, um, as Michael said, it really doesn't inform us very much uh, more than we already knew about um, how to uh, argue and, and persuade courts as to whether or not in a particular case uh, the Me Too evidence should come in. Something that I think is is interesting is to actually take a look at um, the court's summary of what the offer of proof was. And then also, um, I I did read the Tenth Circuit decision last night, and um, the district court allowed into evidence um, exhibits uh, that included spreadsheets containing, among other data, the names and ages of Sprint employees who were being considered for termination. So actually... That, in a in a certain sense, is Me Too evidence. It is evidence about how persons um, other than the plaintiff, who may be in the protected age category, uh, were treated relative to uh, younger persons. So, in, in in that sense, the the court, um, the district court, did not. Um, have an, take an absolute stance against uh, any information regarding other employees. And um, looking at what the, um, the Supreme Court says about the, the evidence that was to be uh, offered, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, some of the stuff I think, um, you know, probably, you know, maybe would be appropriate to keep out. Um, uh, three of the witnesses alleged they heard one or more Sprint supervisors or managers make remarks denigrating older workers. Well, if if the facts really show that this was a supervisor-by-supervisor supervisor, uh, decision, then um, maybe this whole thing of, well, these, these are different supervisors, that's irrelevant. Maybe that applies, and, and, and that information, uh, that evidence should be kept out. Um, and, and there's a couple others, but then there's a very interesting thing here. It said the final witness alleged that Sprint had required him to get permission before hiring anyone over age 40, and that after his termination he'd been replaced by a younger employee, etc. So that particular person was going to testify both as to their own uh, experience, which... You know, that, that sentence actually made me go back and read the offer of proof because I thought that that was quite a, re- a remarkable piece of evidence, if that's what the testimony was going to be. And I yes, think the Supreme it? Court mischaracterized it. <laughs> because what the, the offer of proof actually said was that, that uh, when he tried to hire an individual over 40, he had to get vice president approval. Meaning, I mean, and, and not necessarily for that reason. You couldn't tell from the offer of proof if that was the reason that he was given for having to get vice president approval. And it was just one person. Mm-hmm. 
And so, that's a that's an example of how you 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 see something that may be not not just prejudicial but unduly prejudicial because even uh, uh, the Supreme Court has has uh, mischaracterized this. Imagine a jury uh, being persuaded that 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 uh, uh, meant something that that it really didn't mean, right? Well, given this evidence, how do you really go about proving that age is a factor? I mean, what kind of proof does do people have to put in if they're going to come in as just a one person or as two or three or four? What What is it that the juries are looking for to see? Well, I think that the key, you know, handling is on the plaintiff's side. I think the key always is to you first look at the immediate decision maker and did that immediate decision maker make any statements or references that would indicate that age is that issue. But then you also look for is there a, a, a corporate push to lower the uh, to lower the um, overall age, and, and, and we're finding that to be very common now. A lot of these um, employers are are doing it um, in cases we're involved with because it involves um, attempts to control their health care insurance costs that their health care insurance is becoming more expensive because of older workers. We're seeing a lot of them with um, defined benefits plans that are that they take the, the years of employment and the um, the ages of the um, uh, employees and combine the two of them, and that's how their benefits are paid out. So there's a real economic incentive to lower the, the, the workplace age. And then so what you look for is evidence that ties that corporate culture in to this particular decision. And I think that's what uh, – um, the Supreme Court was concerned was lacking in this case, that it can't just be so far removed with, you know, you have a, a, a mega employer, the fact that one person says, I was subject to race discrimination, and they're off in a, in a different area than another employee who doesn't even work in the same location or supervisors or things of that sort, too remote, but start tying them in that this is really a corporate push and, and you need to obtain that kind of evidence. And, and I think that can primarily come from high-level execs and former execs and, and, and people who are willing to talk. Great. Well, we need to take a short break. When we return, we'll hear from our guests on the Sprint Mendelssohn case decision and age discrimination within companies. We'll be right back. We invite you to visit law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our practice center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Did you know that Legal Talk Network shows are also available as CLE? Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's CLECenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit for your continuing legal education. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. 
Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Craig Williams. We're talking to plaintiff attorney Michael Ketchmark from Davis Ketchmark and McCreet, attorney Jeannie Davini from the law firm of Spencer Fain Britton Brown LLP, and attorney George Lennard from Harris Dowell Fisher and Harris LC. So to follow up with Mike's comments, what right before the break, what Jeannie, what type of evidence do you do you think needs to get put in to prove age discrimination? Well, you know that's that's obviously very case specific, but you know certainly. Um, the traditional way of, of comparable evidence, this, you know, depending on what the reason uh, for the termination was, in this instance it was performance, and to the extent that you can show that, that there was somebody else that had similar performance, um, you know, same performance ratings, that kind of thing, uh, who was younger uh, and, and was not chosen for termination, that would certainly be a way to do it. Um, in instant, there are some instances where there's evidence of discriminatory remarks or, or motive by the, the supervisor in question. Um, but, you know, I, I also agree with, with Mike's analogy on the, on the Apple thing. It really does depend if there is some uh, connection between the, the potential or the, the evidence that's offered and, and the evidence that the plaintiff is, uh, is setting forth. But the thing that bothers me is, that, isn't that really a question for a jury? I mean, why why do judges? I mean, I understand they're the gatekeeper ultimately of it. But if but if there's no connection, then argue to a jury there's no connection. Why are defense lawyers in, in in corporate America? Why are they so afraid of having juries decide these things? I mean, that's what juries do day in and day out: is they weigh evidence, they decide if there's a connection. And it just seems to me that 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 um, there's um, the reason that there's fear is because folks know there is a connection, and that's why they want to keep it away from the jury because they know that this is explosive evidence that if a company's not treating people fairly, that chances are they're doing it across the board. I mean, and and, and that's where you get into the I think the thing of 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 the unduly prejudicial um, and and the misleading of the jury under Rule 403. Um, if what you're going to be putting on in, in, is people who are going to say, well, this happened to me, I was laid off um, a year earlier, uh, or I was fired, and I think it's because of my age. And it's a, a, a subjective impression and an anecdotal story, and they're one out of a thousand employees, and one out of, out of that thousand, you know, a hundred were laid off. It gets to the point where, where the judges do have to draw the line. And, and and I think on the other on the other side of it, um, Michael, you're right that you know there are are going to be situations where <laughs> the reason you want to keep it out is because um, it it is indicative of uh, a a policy. But uh, I don't think I don't think you know you, 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 the judge has to um, just you know let everything in and let the jury sort it out. I mean, it's never been it's never been that way. No, I'm not suggesting that, but but this is during the same reduction in force. I mean, we're, I mean, we're not talking about things that are removed in time by a year or more. This is part of the same overall reduction in force where an employer is making the corporate decision to lower the number of employees that they have. And if part of that corporate decision, if if you can show that there's a pattern going on of the older employees, you know, you got a lifeboat, and instead of having 15,000 people on it, you're only going to have 12,000. Well, which ones is everyone thrown overboard? And, and if it's the, the older people are being thrown overboard, 
board. It, it, it doesn't take a genius to realize what's going on, and jurors should be able to resolve that. Gets back, get, that gets back to the fact that the district judge did let in um, the the objective evidence um, of of the uh, the pattern. Which in this case apparently there wasn't much of a pattern. Well, the other, I mean, two other things that I think are worth thinking about, and and one of them is the one that I think is played up a lot, which is the which is the many trials, and I and I know that the plaintiff's bar likes to uh, poo-poo, as the Kansas City Star put it, uh, the concept of that. But in the in the cases where the plaintiff's attorneys are literally trying to put on, you know, five, ten, fifteen additional uh, people to say I was also discriminated against. And to the extent that those people had completely different supervisors, and I think in this case you had to go up five people before you found somebody in common, uh, it really does require an extraordinary amount of discovery and preparation in order to defend all of those claims uh, at trial. And, and the other thing is I think there's a potential for double recovery. And in, in this instance, several of the five individuals uh, who the plaintiffs wanted to put on at trial had their own claims. And I think there is a danger of of a jury sitting there and thinking, you know, I'm not sure that the company discriminated against uh, Ms. Mendelson, but I sure think they discriminated against this person, and so I'm going to I'm going to make an award here. Um, whereas the the person who who uh, elicited that that kind of uh, feeling from the jury has has his or her own claim and and can certainly recover in that forum. To me, those are the three things, uh, the two things, along with the prejudice issue, that um, really have to be be considered when you're making these kinds of decisions. I mean, th- this case does make clear, doesn't it, the, the proposition that, that if nothing else, Me Too evidence is not per se irrelevant. Uh, and so, so doesn't that suggest that, that uh, at least uh, indicate the possibility that more of this evidence is going to get uh, before a jury or might get before a jury more easily than it, than it had in the past? Yeah, absolutely. I think the court was real clear in saying that this isn't a, um, a bar under a, you know, a Rule 401 or some kind of a bar saying it's not relevant. It's just the opposite. It is relevant, and you're then to weigh it under Rule 403. The trial court's to weigh the whatever probative value it there is against the prejudicial value. And, and all the things that, that Jeannie just identified would be, you know, little little weights that you drop on the prejudicial side. And, and then I think in most cases can be greatly outweighed by the by the relevance of it. It's going to be a case-by-case determination by, by district court judges or trial court judges and on, on the relevance of the information. In many, in many instances, I think that the a uh, different supervisor uh, is going to be uh, determinative and is going to continue to be um, uh, almost a per se rule if it turns out that that is the level at which the decision making occurred. Uh, but um, it's certainly uh, true that it may not be the, re- the level at which the decision making occurred, and particularly perhaps in these um, uh, rifts and, and you know mass layoffs where the possibility of showing a a pattern and of showing a um, corporate-wide policy uh, exists. But um, I think in many instances that uh, the the, uh, court's decision leaves in place Many cases that 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 had held that um, different supervisor is is not relevant. We we are at about uh, the end of our time. I'm sorry to say, uh, and uh, uh, before we wrap up the program, we do like to give each of you an opportunity to give us uh, your your final thoughts, your wrap up thoughts on this topic, and also to tell our listeners where they can find out more about you, uh, contact information, or a website, uh, or whatever you care to point to. Uh, so uh, let's begin with Michael Ketchmark and ask you to give us your final thoughts and uh, how our listeners can find out more about you. 
Sure. I guess uh, I would uh, be speaking to um, uh, any attorney or anyone out there who's facing a discrimination case and, and, and say that, that, you know, these can be won and, and this evidence can be brought in a trial and, and you just have now to, to find the way to, 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 to fit it in and, and don't try to put a square in a round peg a hole, but, but put a round peg into that hole. And, and, and essentially, I think that's what the Supreme Court's saying. Our office handles cases like this and we can be found at www.kansascitylawoffice.com. Thank you very much. Jeannie Davini, your final thoughts? Um, I, I would just say that I, I do think that the, the case, uh, the opinion that the Supreme Court handed down is, um, is largely an evidentiary ruling and, and made clear both that the evidence is not per se admissible or per se inadmissible, and I think we just have to be diligent in, uh, in creating a record on, on one side or the other, depending on who you are. Again, we represent uh, management in these kinds of lawsuits, and we can be found at www.spencerfane, which is F-A-N-E, dot com. Thank you very much. And George Leonard, uh, your final thoughts on this topic? Well, you know, one of the first places this is going to uh, play out is in discovery. And um, that is, is, is going to perhaps be a significant impact because... Um, it's it's not that unusual to be uh, asked um, by the plaintiffs for information regarding uh, other people in a single plaintiff case. And, um, of course, from the point of view of an employer, that's something that is, is uh, resisted. And uh, this may... Um, uh, make that a little more difficult to resist and, and may increase the uh, the burden of um, discovery at that uh, at an early stage even um, so that's about it um, I'm with uh, Harris Dow Fisher and Harris in St. Louis Chesterfield is a suburb of St. Louis and uh, you can find that at www.hdfh.com and my blog is George's Employment Blog, B-L-A-W-G, um, at www.employmentblog.com. Great. Well, thank you very much for participating today. Bob, that just about does it for Lawyer to Lawyer this week. Remember, uh, to our listeners, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at thelegaltalknetwork.com. And let me add my thanks to our guests. Uh, very interesting discussion today. And let me remind our listeners that we are also available on iTunes in the podcast section. And next week we'll be talking about the importance of paralegals and legal assistance to attorneys. Great topic. Looking forward to next week, Bob. We'll talk to you then. I look forward to talking to you. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.